We come now to God's Word, and so let's ask for His help in all the places that we are. Father in heaven, uh, we pray that you would give your help now. Holy Spirit, you are here with us in each place where we're listening. We ask that you would be speaking, that you would be taking words that are spoken and cause them to come alive and to shape us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. If you were in uh, our church congregation a few weeks ago, uh, you will have heard me read a letter of thanks from our friend Cedric Kanana. If you are not, I'll just be referencing that. Uh, he was expressing thanks for our prayers and some steady financial support that we've sent through this pandemic as he's been ministering to Muslim converts and preaching through every means available to him. And through that time, though, he has suffered considerably. He had a bout of malaria, then a round of typhoid, a mysterious ailment that left him with permanent tinnitus, and then complications from a beating where he was beaten almost to death. And he and his wife now have COVID. Uh, but as he said in that letter and has said to me frequently over the last year, God is teaching me. That's what he says. He is preparing me for the next phase of ministry. Each of these bouts of suffering is a form of preparation. His reliance on God through this time is, continues to form his faith. Now, that is a man who sees through the lens of God's sovereign rule over everything. Uh, who sees a God who works all things for good, for, for the good of those who love him. This is a perspective that's offered to us through the Holy Word as well. Um, as we've been studying Exodus, we've seen how God committed himself to a people whom he'd chosen, and in the process of delivering them from captivity and from utter devastation, in their circumstances, in their sense of themselves. In that process, he also revealed his power to the nations, his glory to the nations, and his fixed intentions to shape and form Israel as his own people. The process of saving them was also a process of forming them, reshaping them. So we come into that history today, right after God has delivered them uh, from the Egyptians, who in their blindness to the Almighty God and uh, in their blindness to His rule, defied God and tried to bring Israel back into enslavement. The Israelites were gathered on the shore of the Red Sea, and they see the mightiest army of that age uh, swarming in set on ending this people's freedom uh, once and for all. Then the Lord spoke, and he brought Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. But the Egyptian army ignored this astonishing uh, hand of the Lord, and so they were destroyed as a result. This was a stunning deliverance. Uh, it marked the imaginations of the people of Israel for all time. It became fixed in their songs, fixed in their psalms, in their poems, in their storytelling, in their ritual. It was just part of their remembrance. Uh, 
they had experienced this amazing reality as a people. We are a nation that walked through the depths of the sea. We are a nation who was delivered from death. And God defied the chaos for us. That's who we are. So here at the end of Exodus 15, uh, we have these narrowly saved Israelites. Uh, they're moving into the deserts of the Sinai Peninsula. Between this Red Sea deliverance and their arrival at Mount Sinai, there are several distinctive moments. So the end of chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17. First, they come to the, the first water source uh, after several days, but they find that it's undrinkable. The text says bitter or foul. The, the waters were bitter. And uh, verse, chapter 15, verse 24, the people complained and they turned against Moses. Then when Moses brings the problem to God, the Lord directs him to toss a certain log into the water and it makes the water good to drink. Next event, chapter 16, verse 2, the whole community of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, if only the Lord had killed us in Egypt when we sat around the meat pots and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you've brought us into the desert to, to starve. Then the Lord tells Moses he will supply meat from quail in the evening and bread from heaven in the morning. So every day there'll be meat in the morning, manna, what they call this bread, on the ground in the morning. Next, uh, they journey deeper into the desert of Sinai. And once more the people complained against Moses saying, give us water to drink. And once more the Lord, uh, once more Moses brings the problem to God. He, God directs Moses to take his staff along with some of the leaders and strike the rock at Mount Sinai. So Moses struck the rock and the water gushed out. And then finally, an army of human enemies, the Amalekites, come to kill or enslave this people. And the Lord has Moses stand in constant appeal to God with his staff raised until victory is achieved. So in each of these moments and through them together, God was shaping and he was teaching this people. He was offering lessons for them that were to be internalized as his people and they were to be passed on generation to generation, all the way down through storytelling and remembrance, through song, all the way down to us. To anyone who will listen, to anyone who will take heed, God was teaching. And from this journey to Sinai, from the Red Sea, let's draw out a few insights. First, inescapably, the way was really hard. This was a difficult journey. The deserts of Shur and Sinai on the Sinai Peninsula, they're among the most inhabitable, inhospitable places on the earth. Uh, where there isn't sand, there's rock. Most of the year, there is not a green thing that can be seen. Uh, and now, God leads perhaps two million people, it was 600,000 men, two million people on foot through the midst of the heat, through the parched barrenness, through the dizzying sun, 
this choking wilderness. Now, it is perfectly normal that the people would complain. Uh, they all have headaches. They, they have, don't have water. Everyone's feet are sore. But more so, more significantly, they are afraid for their lives. There are these pains, but they are afraid. Three days in, and the bread has run out, the water bottles are empty, they are on the edge of death, and they know it. You can certainly imagine parents looking at the kids anxiously, checking in, talking with the elderly, checking in with them. There's, there's a, a constant fear. There's a refrain then that begins to run in everyone's mind. We can't take much more of this. We can't take much more of this. I, I'm at my end. I'm at my end. I'm at my end. And as the headaches build and the fear and the frustration build, so does that voice. We can't take much more of this. Does that sound familiar? Because we come to times like this too. Um, generally not out in deserts, but dry places, dry circumstances, places in our lives where there are constant nagging pressures with a head pounding, mind spinning, feeling like we can't possibly go one more step with this. We can't possibly endure this anymore. And sure, uh, if you're listening to this, probably you've known the goodness of God before. There was a time He delivered us from captivity. He delivered us from judgment. We were saved. We knew it at that time. We knew He was powerful. We knew He was good. But that seems like a long time ago. And I don't feel the feelings anymore. I don't feel that salvation. I don't feel that care. I don't feel God's love. What I feel now in this circumstance is fear and confusion. And I just can't get enough clarity in my thoughts because of the constant pressures. The con that swirl is bringing fear and confusion. And, and I, can't, uh, I can't remember. I can't remember what it was like for God to be near and to be sustaining. And so we can relate to them. If not on the physical level, we can relate to the emotional and spiritual experience of response and outlook that seems to declare we can't endure much more of this. So first, the way was really hard. But second, let's note that it was God who had led them here. They didn't just wander off. They didn't just get lost in the wilderness. Uh, they weren't following another god. They are following a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. When God moves, they move. That's how they know where they're going. And from this perspective, their perspective, that fact possibly complicates things even further because they're wondering why. Would the delivering, redeeming God, who knows everything, lead us this way? There, there's a man-made road that runs right from Egypt along the coastline into Canaan. It's the best route. Why would the Lord take us into this horrible desert? Now, we have the benefit, of course, of the whole story. 
and we have God's lessons on this time. But we can note, in the midst of their difficulty, knowing that God had led them into this uh, moment and He was adding to their struggle, uh, it was a confusing time. And so they cry out, why didn't you leave us in Egypt to die there if you were just going to kill us in the end, if you were going to bring us out here to starve? So again, they recognize that they're in this spot not because they wandered off following another god or looking for hope in perishing things or following the ways of Egypt. They're here because they followed God. Literally, they followed Him in pillar of cloud and fire. But what we see in each of the moments here in this section, at, at Mara with the undrinkable water, in the, in the area past Elam with the quail and the manna, and the water from the rock at Masa Meribah, what we see is that God led them into these moments to shape and to teach them. Yes, He was leading, but He was leading them purposefully. In none of these episodes, not, not at all, is there a rebuke from God. Uh, the people complain, Moses cries out, and God directs, but He never scolds them for what they're feeling or, their, or for their complaints. Because of course God knew that two million people couldn't survive a trek from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai and then to Canaan. It's impossible. Of course he knew there is not food and water enough for a thousand people in this area, let alone a million. Jesus helps us understand what was being taught here, uh, what he and the Father were teaching in the desert. In John 6, uh, you'll recall, just after he'd fed the 5,000 by multiplying bread and fish, there's a huge crowd following him, and they want him to keep feeding them. And so they say, we'll follow you, we'll put our trust in you if you feed us. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They're referring to this moment. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus interprets our scripture for today. Very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Then in 1 Corinthians, also talking about this moment in the desert, Paul writes that Jesus is the rock in the desert. He writes, Our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same supernatural food and drank the same supernatural drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock which traveled with them. And the rock was Christ. Jesus says something like this uh, to the woman at the well of Samaria. Whoever drinks of this water, this well water, will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. 
these lessons that Jesus was teaching, that, that God brought into vivid reality through Jesus, were also being taught way back in the desert to two million Israelites, namely that God is the giver and the sustainer of life. It was most clearly, uh, it, it came into fullness in Jesus. Um, it, it came into the heart of every person who received him, that he is the giver and the sustainer of life. But that same lesson was being taught back in the desert. No amount of smarts, no amount of knowledge or skill or beauty can keep a person or a nation alive through the desert. It doesn't matter how awesome you are, it's not going to keep you alive through the desert. Life, God was showing, is a gift of grace. So not only, as he had taught, does God push back the chaos and hold it back so we can keep walking, but he is the one who gives every good thing every good thing. He's the designer of every wonderful thing that is in the world, of everything that makes life work. It's His and it comes to us by grace. So with the Israelites, God was reshaping them to orient their lives around Him. Because where had they been? They had a slave mentality. Even as they're, they're following in the desert, they, they were bringing with them a slave mentality, meaning they had been looking to the hand of their masters, the Egyptians, for everything. Their lives were in their hands. And they had come to believe that living, just going on living, meant keeping your head down, making bricks, and receiving whatever the masters would give you. But God's plan was to make a people whose everyday rhythms whose every decision, everything from growing food to how they would eat, when they would eat, uh, all parts of their life would be informed by His presence with them and the freedom and goodness that He gives. So they had to be reshaped and reformed to know that the necessities of life didn't come from the Egyptians. The necessities of life really come from Him and always had. So that's why he doesn't reproach them or scold them for their complaining. He knows this is really hard. Uh, but he's teaching them to bring their burdens, to bring their complaints, to bring their worries and their fears and their needs to him. So whether it's a circumstantial trouble, food or drink, or whether it's human enemies, He's teaching them that they can trust Him. And finally, He teaches that this is daily. This way of constant reference to Him is daily. The manna is there every morning. If they don't trust Him, if they try to hold on to it, if they try to take control of the situation, when He's given clear directions of how they're to do this, then even that gift goes rancid. Even the gift will turn. But they have to heed his directions. Likewise, they're not going, there's not going to be bread uh, on that day of rest, on the seventh day. So on the sixth day, they're going to need to gather double. What normally happens 
So he's reversing what normally happens is that on that night, the manna won't turn rancid if you keep it. It, it will sustain. This is supernatural food. It's, it's from God and it behaves according to God's instructions. And so they have to relate to it as they relate to him, to heed what he's saying. There's a lesson here for us. You can't, you can't treat the word of God like any other word. Um, it's not like any other food, God's word. Everything that comes from God, especially his own words, have to be treated like he directs. We can't just make them do what we want them to do, make them say what we want them to say. His words must be treated as he's given them. In conclusion, we noted that sometimes we find, we find ourselves in desert places like this. Having wandered there ourselves, or having been led there, and the trouble is so great that we can hardly remember when times were different. So remember that the Lord will never leave you and never forsake you. When you find yourself in that desert, and maybe that's now, the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. He goes with you. You can cry out to Him at any time. He is there. I also want to notice one reason that we gather for worship. The worship gathering is where Jesus has promised to open up the rock, where he's promised for the water to gush out. Gathered around his word, gathered around the meal of remembrance, we eat spiritually the bread of life. We receive his gospel as it's preached. We eat the word. And then through signs, we lay hold of the grace of Jesus from the cross. We receive the grace of forgiveness. And he's promised that when we gather together, those gifts are there for us. They're offered. He's taught us that our lives are to be shaped around him daily. Like that manna in the wilderness. But he's also helped us in our weakness by giving us a day and giving us a gathering. It's a respite. It's a rest. A rest from the burdens. And it's a time to receive from him. And we receive from him when we honor him, when we turn to him. Uh, so to turn to life is to receive life. And when we orient ourselves around him, and we orient ourselves to him and to life, giving him honor, we receive from him as well. The goodness that he brings. So may you do so always. Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the lessons that can come to us even as you left a record of how you formed your people in the desert. Thank you that there's wisdom for us. And I pray that we would be willing, we who hear your word would be willing to shape our lives around you at the center and your constant presence with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.